Good morning, Central family. My name is Adam Barrett. I get the privilege of serving as our next-gen pastor. I get to serve with an amazing next-gen team of kids, pastors, students, and college pastors. Uh, they're just phenomenal, so it's, it's a, I get a huge privilege for me. If you're joining us online or in the concourse, Oakwood Chapel, or here in our worship center, uh, we're glad you're here because the body needs to gather, and so we're doing that. Thank you because it's needed. Um, so for the longest time, when I first started getting serious about my faith, it was right, right around the age of 14. I grew up in the church my whole life, but for age 14, um, God really awakened my desire for him. And in the beginning of that time, I had a, an idea of what growth looked like in my life following Jesus. And so I had this, this idea where, you know, if, if I started here, um, you know, in 20, 30 years, I'm going to be moving kind of in this direction. You know, like there's going to be some ups and downs, but generally I'm moving in this direction. And what things contribute to that is like, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to increase in knowledge. I'm going to know more about the Bible and theology and God. And so that's, that's going to contribute to my growth. Uh, I'm going to increase uh, in my certainty. Because I'm going to know more knowledge. I'm going to have more confidence in my faith. And so that's, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm also uh, going to increase in my maturity. Because I'm going to know more about God and like his fruit of the spirit are going to come more. Now, things will increase, but then also other things would decrease. So example, like um, I am going to have less struggles, I thought. Or less hard, hard things necessarily. I know there's going to be some hard things, but it's not going to be as hard because I have God. Other things is I'm going to have less questions because, well, I, I know more about God. I know more about the Bible. It should be like that. And then lastly, I thought I was going to have less doubts. I'm, fast forward 22 years later to where I am today. I look, I look at my life at following Jesus, and I, I don't think this is it. I, in fact, I, I, have I grown in my knowledge of the Lord? Yes. I also realize, like, I'm talking about infinite, almighty God, and it's like, wait a second, I'm, I'm starting to learn more and more, and I just realize how much more I can learn. H have I grown in my maturity? Yes, but then when I look at the fruits of the Spirit, have I grown in those? Yes, but at the same time, I realize how selfish I am. Like, I knew I was selfish then, but I'm more and more aware of how selfish I am. I've, I've grown in knowledge, but I think I have a lot more questions. It, it, and I've seen things in my life now in these past decades where it causes me to question God's involvement in my life at times. Or I've seen things that happen in other people's life that I love and I start to ask, hey God, what, where are you involved in this area? And my doubts sometimes seem to be more than it was before. And so when doubts come, how do we respond when you hear the word doubt, you know, there's a couple different ways we use this term. I can say, I doubt I will win this game, or I doubt I will get a passing grade on this test. That's one way you can use doubt, but what we're going to talk about today is a, a deeper level to doubt. I like what Tim Keller says about doubt. He says this, he says, doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. 
So when doubts come, it's, I know something is true. Like, okay, I believe this is true, and yet I have an experience or a feeling, a circumstance happened in my life, and even though I think this is true, I don't feel it to be the case. Doubt speaks to a real conflict, a real tension that we can all experience. So whether you're in a time where you're in a time of you have some doubts right now, or maybe you don't have many doubts at all, how we respond to doubts matter. It matters because you have people in your relational world who have doubts, but you might not even know it. You might have kids or grandkids who will have doubts, and the question is, will they feel safe to come to you and speak about them? I mean, when you look at the heroes of faith in Scripture, they had lots of struggles. They had lots of doubts. And so if the heroes of our faith had those, we're not immune to them as well. And so we're going to look at a couple Bible passages and how to respond to doubt. We're going to look at a psalm, and we're going to look at two stories, interactions with Jesus. And from these scriptures, we're going to get a couple guardrails when it comes to how we respond to doubt, whether we're personally experiencing doubt or those who are close to us are experiencing doubt. We're going to look at Psalm, chapter, Psalm 73. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open that up. Psalm 73. There's Bibles in front of you. And it's a psalm written by a guy named Asaph. And we know a little bit about Asaph. So if you read the book of Psalms, he actually wrote several psalms. And so I'm going to show you a scripture from 1 Chronicles about Asaph so we get an idea of who this author is. And it says this in chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles. Then he, that's King David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. Asaph was a chief Levite. So the Levites were in charge of corporate worship gatherings for the people of Israel. And so it it makes sense that Asaph would be a writer of psalms because psalms were used in the worship of Israel. So he would sing, he would know these things, and so he wrote some of the psalms. And so let's look at what he, how he starts Psalm 73 in verse 1. He says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. There's a serious concern happening for Asaph, and he uses this language not as like to lose his footing, not like, oh, I was walking and I tripped. It's a more intense imagery. This past week, uh, my wife and I took some of our kids we, on a, an adventure. I say adventure, not vacation, because we took them to some national parks, and taking kids in a tent is an adventure, sometimes not a vacation, but it was great, and we went to the Badlands, and at the Badlands, we went on this past Wednesday. It was one of the hottest days in South Dakota. It was a great day to go to the Badlands, by the way, and hike with kids who are little. And so we're going on this hiking trail, and we're walking, and we're trying to get uh, this one hiking trail brings you to kind of the upper parts of the Badlands where you can walk on the cliffs of the Badlands. And so we get to this place where there's this ladder. It's about 30 feet high, and we climb up it. We have our kids get up there. And I know some of you are like, oh, my gosh, trust me. I think most of you would be able to do it. It's, it's not as bad. And so we get up there with our kids, and we look around at the beauty, and then all of a sudden, I see my son, Hosea. And he's by a cliff. He's six. He has way more energy than me. And all of a sudden, my anxiety starts getting up. And I say, Hosea, don't move. Don't 
breathe. I didn't really tell him to do that, but still it's like, okay, it's like, because right next to him, about eight, nine feet is a 30-foot drop. And then this made me anxious, and this reminded me of a time I was hiking and another time in the Badlands with my wife and her parents, and we were up on the cliffs in a different trail, and there's this smaller passageway going next to a cliff, and it's kind of slanted down. And I knew I was supposed to be careful, but I wasn't careful enough because on this cliff, there's 30, 40-foot drop. And so I'm walking, and all of a sudden, my foot slips on the loose gravel, and I turn, and I just go on my hands and knees, and I slide a foot down. And this is the closest near-death experience I've had probably in my life. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I almost fell off a cliff in the Badlands. This is the type of image that Asaph is talking about. When he says, I almost lost my footing, something intense is happening for him. And so let's look at verse 3, what, what, what's happening. He says this, For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. And this is the first thing that we're going to see in how to respond to doubt is this, that we need to be honest with God. We need to be honest with God. There's a realness to Asaph that is pretty remarkable. Uh, he's jealous of the wicked or the proud and because they're successful still. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, God says we should not want to be like the proud or the wicked. And yet, and now Asaph would have known this. He was a cheese Levite. He knew the scriptures. And yet, Asaph, knowing this truth about how God wants him to live a life, he finds himself in a point where he is jealous of a quality that God does not desire for him. The fact that Asaph is able to say this to God and be brutally honest shows he has a high relational view of him. So when we have doubts or struggles, whatever they may be, we can say them to God. We can be honest, even if they seem like they go against the Bible or what we may think that God wants for us. So if we're able to be honest with God, and he's able to handle anything we bring to him, the question is, do we model this for people? Because again, this isn't just when we experience doubts, it's for, for others. And the, one of the best ways we do this is how we listen. How we listen. And, and here's an important phrase I've learned is, when we are talking to someone who shares a doubt or a struggle, do we seek to understand or do we seek to be understood? Do we seek to understand or do we seek to be understood? Because when someone says a doubt, there's some tension because you might not know how to respond and you might want to give that quick answer. And the fact is, we need to understand what's going on in their life, what's happening. So that's the first thing. We need to be honest with God. The second thing, the way to respond to doubt is let the faith of others help carry your doubts. Let the faith of others help carry your doubts. Look at what Asaph says in verse 16 and 17 of the psalm. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult, what a difficult task it is. Then I went to your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. In the midst of Asaph's struggle, he goes to the tabernacle, or what would be the future, the, the temple of God, where he received from helpful perspective and reassurance from God. And we don't know how he received these, but we, can, we know what he probably did. So when he went to the tabernacle, he would have worshipped. And it wouldn't have been just him, it would have been with other people. He would have worshipped. He would have read scripture. 
He would have prayed. There actually could have been a prophetic word where a prophet would have been there and possibly spoke to him or someone else. Asaph sought God's presence by going to the tabernacle, and he worshipped him. Now, we don't have the tabernacle or a temple, but what we see in the New Testament is we have what now is called the body of Christ. When the people gather collectively together, we represent the body of Christ, the fullness of God's presence. And when we come together, we come to worship. But one thing that can happen when we come to worship is that we receive support from our brothers and sisters. There could be times when you come to church and you have great doubts or struggles about your family, about your job, about your marriage, or there's a certain situation happening and you're like, I don't know how God can be involved in this. What, what, what's going on? And in those times in my life, like I can read the lyrics of the songs I'm singing and I know that I believe it to be true, but I don't feel it to be true. It's in those moments where we have brothers and sisters, like Paul talked about, like how others are worshiping. They're actually proclaiming those truths even in the midst of my struggle, even in the midst of my doubt. That's why we need each other. That's why we are to gather together when we worship. Worship is a powerful component, and it's a way we can carry each other's doubts. But there needs to be more than just coming to a church service to help carry each other's doubts. We need people in our lives who are safe and who we trust. And if we don't have those components, this is usually one of the number one reasons why people don't feel like they can be honest or share their doubt and so that they can be carried by that. It's kind of like uh, going to the gym for the first time. So a number of years ago, I, I, there was a good deal at Great Life, and I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll sign up. I, I'm not a gym person at all. I, I still really am not. But I, I signed up and I went. And I remember going there, and there is like 150 machines there. You have no idea. I know what a treadmill does. That was about it. You know, up and down, fast, slow. That was what I got. And then, but all these other machines. So I remember going to this other machine, and I'm like, well, this other guy's doing like seven of these bricks. I'm like, well, let me try six. <laughs> nope, not going to happen. I had to go to two probably or something like that. And then, like, I, then I'm trying stuff, I'm like, I don't know if this should hurt. Is this the muscle I should do? And then you look around, and then you see some really ripped, jacked people who look like they live at the gym, and they have the right gear and everything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they're throwing things around and ropes. Or, even worse, if you try a class for the first time. I tried body pump. Oh my word. You get there, and you need a mat, you need a step stool, you need hand weights, you need a bar, you need varying weights, and then you have 10 seconds to switch into these weights. And I'm like, oh my gosh, and I'm looking at everyone, and I see that everyone feels so certain about what they're doing, and yet I have no idea. And I, do you know what I end up feeling like? I feel like I don't belong. What do I need in that scenario? I, I need someone to be with me. I need someone to actually like, hey, actually, this isn't that big a deal. Uh, you just do this and this. And like, oh, man, I feel that same muscle. Or, hey, this class, you're going to hate your life after this, but it's actually going to be okay later because you're going to get used to, used to it. I need somebody to help me, to come alongside of me. The same feeling at the gym can be the same feeling people have at church. Too often we'll come into this building and we put on the right look or we put on the right act. And we'll see people who appear so certain. We'll hear pa 
pastors preach and we're like, oh my gosh, they have so much knowledge and all this stuff. And they have this appearance of certainty. And yet we come and we're like, oh, you have no idea the chaos that's happening in my life. I barely made it to church. People seem so certain and we can feel like we don't belong. Friends, the church needs to be a place where we help carry each other and our doubts, not making a false standard that's not based on God, but based on this social barrier of ours. We need to be a place where we carry each other. I love what Kara Powell says. She's a lead researcher in teenage spirituality. She says this about doubt. It's not doubt that is toxic, but unexpressed or unexplored doubt that is toxic. This is the reason some people will leave the church. It's not that they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, most people have a very positive view of Jesus. It's because they have some real questions or doubts, and when they come to a church, they don't feel like this is the place to explore it at all. And so they're forced to wrestle with their deep questions, these doubts that are going to form them outside of the church. We can far too easily silence people. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, silent, like we don't go up to people and say, hey, no, be quiet. We can silence people by how we talk about certain issues and how we act. If we want to help carry the doubts of people, it's going to be difficult because it, it gets a little messy. And so the third thing about responding to doubt is kind of a how-to of that, and it's this. We need to seek dependence rather than an answer. We need to seek dependence rather than an answer. Look at what Asaph says in verse 25 and 26. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and heart may flail, but God is the strength of my heart. Asaph comes to a powerful realization. He, he, knows, he, he doesn't know if things are going to get better. His heart and his flesh may fail still, and yet his dependence is on the Lord. Dependence is extremely difficult for us. I mean, one, because we're, we're raised kind of the, the opposite. We're raised, we start dependent on our caregivers, and the hope is that we become independent, self-sufficient adults. And that, okay, that's not a bad thing. But when you come to Jesus, do you know what Jesus says about dependence and independence? He says, um, I know you've been doing things that, like this, but I want you to learn to depend on me. Not on your own strength, but on my strength. That, that's the message of Jesus. He says, you need to be less independent, more dependent. And so how does, I, I want to show how this independence and pen, dependence play, uh, plays into effect with doubt. I want to show you, I'm going to draw a little image. Again, I'm not the best drawer, but I think you're going to get it, okay? All right, so this is going to be, there's a spectrum, Okay? And on both ends of the spectrum is independence. Dense. I always have that spell in my head. Okay, right there. So on both sides of this, here or there, you can be independent. And then in the middle, we have dependence. Now, how does this relate to doubt? On this end, you can have doubts. And I'm going to put the term skeptic by this. Now, it... it you can be a skeptic and follow Jesus, but I think this word helps, where you can have doubts, but this person wants to question everything. 
They don't really actually want to explore alternate meanings or understanding. They really just want to question. Why? Because they, they want to stay where they are at. They're independent. And so there's, there's lots of, there's doubts, but they're independent. Now let's switch over to the other side. I'm going to put, so no doubts, but then I, there is, I'm going to call an arrogance or an arrogant certainty to this side. This is a tricky one because a lot of people, if they're in this camp, can disguise themselves as great Christians. They can know certain things, know lots about the Bible, and yet there's an arrogance that leads them to be independent of God, where they think, I have this figured out. I'm okay. I'm in a good spot. And so it leads us to have this arrogant certainty that fuels independence. Both sides are unhealthy to following Jesus. And so where do we need to be? We need to be in a dependence area. And in the middle, this is the great thing. There are doubts still. There are questions. And then also, like, I'm not saying you can't have certainties, but there's a difference. Instead of an arrogant certainty that's independent, you can have a certainty that's dependent on someone else. Do you you see the relationship that we need to be in, that it's important that we need to seek to be dependent rather than an answer? And, oh, simple answers are so much easier, right? When I have an issue, where do I go? I go to Google. I go to YouTube. People will go to watch a 15-second TikTok video or what have you. But really, when we have deep questions, they'll never suffice. Do you know that the church falls into that temptation as well? Oftentimes, when people have real struggles, we'll give a simple biblical answer and say, well, the Bible says this. That should help. We fall into the same trap. Again, this is where it gets messy. When we hear someone's doubts that are like, oh, like you might totally disagree with, we think if we entertain those doubts at all, we're being disloyal to God or to the Bible. And so that's what makes us put a pressure. I talk to so many parents and adults who are interacting with teens, and they're like, I just want to give the right answer. And I'm like, hey, guess what? It's not about the right answer. It's about rather pointing them not to an answer, but pointing to a person. It's about pointing to the person that holds not just one answer, but all answers, all truths together. It's about depending on Jesus. So it's okay to have doubts. It's about where it leads you. Does it lead you to be more dependent on the Lord or less dependent? Or if you have no questions or doubts, you can kind of still be independent and still in an unhealthy spot. So here's a question I want you to consider when we're dealing with doubts in our culture. Are there issues in our culture that you may be too close-handed on and holding on to that simple answer? Are there issues in our culture that you may be a little too close-handed on with that simple answer? Because as Christians, it's really easy to say, well, the Bible says this, and that's the done deal. Sometimes we hold on to these specific answers so tightly, we begin to lose grip on the one we're supposed to be depending on ultimately. And this is where it gets messy. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't speak truth. It does. But I'm saying is that the Bible is clear that we are to be dependent ultimately not on our interpretation of the Bible, but our dependence on Jesus Christ. 
So the last point in how to respond to doubt is I, I want to look at two stories of people who bring doubt to Jesus. And this is what we're going to see in this, is that God can greatly use our doubts for growth. God can greatly use our doubts for growth. Now, before I go into these stories, it's important to know just because you have doubts doesn't mean you'll grow in your faith. Again, it goes back to the spectrum. If we have doubts, we need to be dependent So the first story is the most popular, I would say, among Christians. It deals with one of Jesus' close friends, and he has a nickname. We call him Doubting Thomas. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. And this story takes place after Jesus dies and rose again, and Jesus starts revealing him his resurrected body, himself, to his friends. But he doesn't reveal himself to Thomas. And so his friends, the friends go to Thomas and say, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. And Thomas responds, unless I see the holes in his hands and his side. Now, can not only see, unless I put my finger and touch the hole, then I will believe. If I don't get to do that, I will not believe. Jesus shows up to Thomas eight days later. Eight days, that's a long time. Eight days later, and Jesus says this. To Thomas, he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. We give, we give Thomas too hard of a time. Okay, so first off with Thomas, um, the other friend saw Jesus he didn't get to. I'd, I'd be a little like, What? Why don't I get to see Jesus? Why doesn't Jesus come to me? And not only that, but the other disciples, they weren't perfect. They were still full of doubts and struggles. I mean, Peter denied Jesus for crying out loud. So Thomas is still in the same boat with them. And we forget the key takeaway from the story. The key takeaway is not that Thomas doubted, but it's in Thomas's response. In the midst of his doubt, in the midst of that time when he's saying, I don't want to believe, he depends on Jesus and claims, my Lord and my God. That's the focus of Thomas. The second story I want to look at deals with a, a father. And this father has a son who is... Uh, Scripture says it's taken over by a spirit, and the spirit would lead the son into seizure-like symptoms. So we don't know how long this is happening, but it was happening for probably a long time. And the father, hearing about Jesus being a healer, brings his son to Jesus and tells Jesus about his son and what's happening. And I want you to look at what Jesus says to the father right here. He says, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, the dad's got to be a little frantic at this moment. I mean, we got to put ourselves in the shoes of the dad. Can you imagine having your own kid who not only has seizure-like symptoms, but when he goes into a seizure, throws himself in fire, in water, Can you imagine the suffering of the son that's going on? Can you imagine the suffering of the dad seeing this over and over again? It's completely out of control, and you don't know when it's ever going to happen next. I mean, you're always on high anxiety alert, and that's wearing. And then he sees Jesus, and he says, maybe Jesus can help us because I don't know what to do. He's at a point of desperation. And he says, hey, Jesus, if you're able... 
Now, if you're able, Jesus, we're going to look at it in just a moment, but I understand why there's some doubt with this dad. Because this dad has seen things, not just for a couple days, for years of suffering. And so, yeah, he has some doubts. He has some struggles. And he goes to Jesus. Now, I want, let's look at what Jesus says in response to him. It says this. Um, and Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, in both of these stories, Thomas and this father, there's a little tension with Jesus addressing the doubt. Like, we're like, oh, like, because Jesus brings gentle correction. Now, to be corrected is not a bad thing. We really, I, at least for me, I really struggle being corrected at times. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be wrong. Why? Because I have selfish motives. But when Jesus brings gentle correction, it's never a demeaning of like, oh my gosh, how dare you? You, you didn't believe? No, no. Jesus, Jesus wants to help Thomas believe. He wants this father to help him believe. And I love the father's response. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Do you know what's powerful? Do you know that you can follow Jesus with belief and unbelief? You don't have to have just this, always this 100% belief. There's times where you can see in life, you can come to Jesus and say, hey God, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now Jesus responds to the man by healing his son. Powerful. And again, I, I look at these stories, and I'm like, well, well, one, encouraged, but then also I ask the bigger question, and it kind of goes to some doubts I have. Um, yeah, but God, what about the times you don't show up? What about the times where, yeah, that, this doctor's appointment didn't go well again, it went bad, and, you didn't, and you're supposed to show up several times ago? What about when God doesn't show up with some payments on mortgage or things that you're struggling in your business? What about, why, why doesn't God show up in time? What do we do when God doesn't show up or do what we're hoping he's going to do? Because we're coming to him, we're trying to be dependent, and yet it doesn't seem like it's working out. This is why I love the story of the dad, because his simple phrase is something we needed to hold on to. I believe. Help my unbelief. Because God, if I'm honest with you, I've seen things. For a, a while now, where it, this, this following Jesus st stuff sometimes doesn't make sense to my life. I'm like, why doesn't these things get better? Why doesn't things in my family get better? Why doesn't this thing for my friend get better? And then I look at this phrase, and I think we need to hold on to this. And this is what we can take away is that we can say, I believe, help my unbelief. So for me, like, I know God is loving, and he wants everyone to come to him and be in relationship with him, but I struggle completely with the idea that people would suffer in hell. Like, all the time I struggle with this. God, I, I believe that you are loving. Can you help me in this area? God, I believe you're good, and I, like, I know you're faithful, but I see my friend here suffering, and it seems ridiculous. And then I look at the world suffering of hunger and all these things, and it seems overwhelming. God, I know that you are good, but help my unbelief and the tension I feel in my soul. I believe. Help my unbelief. Because when we say that phrase, when we say that scripture, it says we're not holding on to a simple truth or a simple answer. We're choosing to say, 
I'm holding on to you, Jesus, the holder of all answers, the holder of all understanding. God, I don't know. I believe, and I'm going to choose to depend myself on you and not just an answer.